Welcome back in listeners to another wonderful episode of Whisper in the Wings. We have joining us the creator Emily King, who is with Pastiche NYC, and they are presenting a work by Ms. King, which is called Grace Under Pressure. It's an eight-part audio comedy radio drama musical podcast miniseries that you can listen to and you can get more information by visiting grace-under-pressure.com simplecast.com or an even better place to go will be www.pastichenyc.com you can get all the information about the company there as well as the show but let's go ahead and bring on this amazing creator emily king (laughs) and i just want to thank you so much for joining us today first of all here at whisper in the wings thank you so much you're welcome i'm very happy to be here I first just want to know a little bit more about what Pastiche NYC kind of is and does. Seems like my overall agenda and all this stuff is, is that, you know, when I was 20 years old, that was 47 years ago. And I worked with people who were in their 60s and 70s and 80s, who were some of them giants in their field. And I feel like I... At connect as sort of a bridge to what I learned from those people. Not just that they were famous, but they, each of them, you know, had some really intense careers and had stuff to pass on to me, whether I was smart enough to listen or not. And then I want to bring that to this new generation of people who have a visual and social media kind of connection that didn't exist back then. And, I, you know, I'm very wary of the whole that rabbit hole of going you know getting so obsessed with with social media that you stop doing anything actual but it's also just such an incredible opportunity like what did we do so my last show was edith wharton's house of mirth Mm -hmm. and the and that was a real real labor of love and the music was by the then living now not living like japanese rock star composer performer Ryuchi Sakamoto. So when I bought an ad in Facebook to put out that House of Mirth in its entirety was available, I said, oh, you know what? I'll put, I'll push the button for Japan in the, in, you know, what countries you want to be sent to. You know, I did all the English speaking countries and Japan, and we got hundreds of responses from Japan and then Korea and then, you know, Malaysia, you know, it's like, it just sort of, there are people out there who, and I had put that English was the language of the thing, and they they know they know English, and they're and they're big fans of Sakamoto, or they're even big fans of Edith Wharton, who wrote the novel it's based on. But it was you know delightful to me because it's like thank God my social media guy will be happy I'm getting numbers. But to me it was just you know this is the whole world, and that there's there is no limit in the way that if your material connects with people, it can connect with people everywhere. And that is what makes the tech side of this so not just interesting and fascinating, but also makes up the fact that I, I, you know, I didn't want to even do live theater once we got to 2020. You know, we actually had a date to do Persuasion, which is the Jane Austen piece that's based on Beethoven. And we had a gig and it was postponed every three months for a year and a half. And when they finally offered us a stage, you know, this is like nine actors and five musicians live. The stage was only 30 feet by 12 feet. 
I said, I can't put 14 people safely in a space that size with an audience of 90 people just opposite them. I don't, you know, they can't wear masks. You know, anyway, I just went, you know, I'm just not doing live. So I poured all my energies into making this very interesting, peculiar process that we call pastiche, where you take still pictures, photographs of real places or paintings, persuasion. We did a lot of art, you know, British landscape paintings, things like that. And in iMovie, which is like, I'm, you know, I'm no big technical genius. I, you know, I love iMovie and Photoshop. Those are my yes. friends. And so <laughs> in iMovie, once we got the, the music recorded, which was very difficult in COVID. I mean, we had, it was supposed to be one pianist and one string quartet. And we ended up using the one pianist and who was, who was then in Israel, all of us, you know, all of a sudden he, he, he went home and parts of four other quintets. So we ended up having nine stage performers and 15 musicians to do to do this one show because we could only do it in pieces and people would get sick or they'd say they could do it, but it was too hard or they could do part of it or they had to go back to Korea to take care of a sick family member or, you know, what it was just one rolling thing after another. And I think one of the things I learned from the whole process is you just, you just have to roll with the punches. You have to say, okay, well, that's not going to happen. You know, we had a, an agreement to launch Persuasion on the tank, the tank NYC, and they had their own cyber tank website. And they were really nice and really great. So we had to give them a firm date and we got to the firm date and we, don't, we only had half the show. So we had to split it and then we lost some momentum. And at that point we were trying to do, you know, sell tickets which I finally gave up on, but we got a grant, which was really wonderful, partly because of the 15 musicians that we were able to pay everybody. And then we showed the second half and then we showed sold the whole thing, but you kind of just, the point is that you, you know, you get stopped and then you figure out, okay, well, how are we going to do this next? And it was never a question of giving up because we already had these fantastic recordings of people's performances. I already knew, you know, how I was going to back them up and, and what the, iMovie backgrounds were going to be, and then I hired real editors to put it, put them all together. And we learned a lot about that, about green screen and gray screen is not a green screen and, you know, stuff like that. The second bat for doing House of Mirth, I thought, well, I've got green screens for everything so great. But then when you, you find out that you can't hand hold a camera, a green screen, <laughs> if you're going to have a still background, because it looks incredibly stupid. If the movements, so we got, you know, we kept the backgrounds moving enough so it didn't look really bizarre, but there was sort of technical stuff that I knew nothing about. So every show was absolutely a learning experience on my part in terms of the te technicalities of it. But besides hiring wonderful editors, audio editors and video editors, I couldn't let it go to somebody else. You know, it, it had, because I still had my vision, you know, I still knew how the show was going to work. What are the emotional points that you, you know, what are the performances that are going to make this something really incredibly special? And the thing about doing stuff during COVID was people were home. They weren't on the second national tour of Hello, Dolly. They were home going out of their minds, you know, recording auditions. Basically, that's all they did, you know, and they're, and all of them, each of them is a gem as far as I'm concerned of my, of the, my performers that I was able to find. That's the roundabout version of Pastiche NYC. I love it. Let's talk. Can we talk about diversity? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So one of the things 
I'm really proudest of is in all my shows is that there's a great deal of diversity. And that was always just the, you know, the most wonderful people showing up. I didn't care, you know, where they were from, but I was kind of proud to find out that actually that, you know, some were Asian, some were Latino, some were a incredible mixture of different cultures, which is that's actually, I think, one of our biggest strengths. And but also that it's not just colorblind casting. Because I don't think in America that's even possible. No one is ever unaware of what background people are. Because we basically, as much as we hate it, we grew up in racism, like, you know, fish grow up in water. It's just always been around. And I was really lucky because my parents were very progressive. You know, before she got married, mom worked in an NAACP nursery school. And dad wrote his college senior thesis on race relations for, in his, for a psych degree. And and we never heard slurs in our house ever. Still, it seeps in from everywhere, you know, and, and you have to like be aware of it and defy it. That's my my personal philosophy. But in addition to being hiring the best people, I think for me, it was important. And it's kind of a weird through line that the black man is, is the romantic lead. I, you know, take that for what it's worth. But for me, I think the the men are always people that have, they're up against something. So in Persuasion, Captain Wentworth is looked down upon by Anne Elliot's family because he's a nobody. And in, in Britain, and, you know, he's sort of, the, her family's sort of minor nobility. And we can't really translate that into something in America, you know, nobility and being a nobody. But we certainly understand caste and that racism is a big part of caste in America. You know, you're already up against something just by being black. So it was important for me in the casting when I went looking for these male leads and I found amazingly talented people. So it, it was a little more proactive than just casting whoever the best person was. For those parts, I went, you know, this is a BIPOC casting issue, you know, and I went to go talk to people. So I don't want to say that. I don't know if that's going to get me in trouble or not, but, you know, so that's always been our policy. And, you know, being an aging white woman automatically has its privileges and automatically, you know, people judge you for whatever they judge you for. And that's that's what prejudice is. So, well, I love all the work that Pastiche NYC is doing then. This sounds amazing. Now, I want to turn the attention, the focus a little bit more on a per the particular work we're here to talk about, Grace Under Pressure. Can you tell us a little bit more about this show? I can tell you a lot about this show. So I used to live in London and I came back from London to New York City in about 1991. And when I got here, I had worked, when I was in Britain, I worked, I made my living in the theater as an actor. When I got to New York, there were no auditions that weren't for like assistant understudies for shows that had already been cast and there, there wasn't any real work at Equity. And I came back, I had a one wonderful cousin named Alice, who's pretty much my age, who had been all this time that I was gone, had been involved in off off Broadway theater companies that were developing new work by new writers with unknown actors and doing them in little pokey corners all over New York City. And it was a it was a scene. It was really wonderful. And she worked with the 52nd Street Project and with Circle Rep and all sorts of, you know, great stuff was going on. And she got me into directing. But I also was starting to write. And one morning there in the 90s, I woke up and just had this full-blown vision of what this show was. I went, Grace Under Pressure, eight-part radio series. 
she loses her job in every episode and Klein falls down this social economic ladder. It, you know, it just was, it was like just there. And Alice had to play her. That was just, everything was very, very clear. So I started writing it in episodes and we did, I think the first three episodes as part of Women's Work Theater Festival. They're very well received. And then it didn't go anywhere. And that's like the sort of off off Broadway history is like you do something, it's really wonderful, it's passionate, everybody's really great, everybody says it's terrific, and then it doesn't go anywhere. And I don't know where I, who I expected it to make it go somewhere, but that's kind of thing, it's out of your hands what the next step is. So it went in a drawer. But before I put it in the drawer, I finished it. I wrote all it, all eight episodes and always wanted Alice to do it. Did a lot of other shows, wrote a lot of other things. Fast forward to last year. Now, both Alice and I have been cancer patients. We share some DNA, I guess, but I had kind of dropped out of theater in 2003 because I had to take a real job with real health insurance. And then, you know, Alice had her things and she went the very medical route. And I did the minimum that I had to do. And this is irrelevant, but, you know, I did Chinese medicine, which really, really worked for me. But she kept going and had lots of extreme medicine and was doing all right for a while. But by the end of last year, not she didn't make it to the end of last year. So say a year ago from now, so last June, she was pretty much a terminal patient, but she... And she looked very, very different, but she sounded just the same. She really, she still had her joy and her heart and sharing with people and always interested in what was going to happen next. And so I just said, you know what, we got to do Grace Under Pressure. So she was kind of easily tired and also very much COVID. She was very immunocompromised. And so we did it in her building which had a very large like community room. We used to call it the rumpus room in the basement. And we hired uh, mics. We hired an engineer. We hired seven other actors, who most of whom were members of a theater company that she is a, was a wonderful central part of called the New Circle Theater, which are what was left of Circle Rep. And they've always been developing new writers and and the actors are wonderful. So I had known them and I, you know, figured out who the, who's going to play what part. And then I found the one person missing was, of course, the handsome Black American lead, who I found in the incredible talent of Roger Casey, who plays Louis. So we had our company and we did everything with social distancing. Everybody was at each end of an eight foot table. Your microphone was labeled, so only you used it. You wore a mask when you weren't actually in front of the microphone. We made it as safe for Alice as possible. And we did it all in one week. Recorded the whole thing in one week. I went back and recorded the songs after we were done with recording the show. And it was an incredible experience. And I think everybody felt like they knew that what we were doing was something that we couldn't do a month later. And and we were right. And I, I can't explain the kind of person Alice was. She was so beloved by the people who she worked with and obviously her family as well. She really was like the personal social heart of our family and of any group of people that she was part of. She did dragon boat racing. Memorial Sloan Kettering had this team 
of cancer survivors, you know, and they would go to Italy and France and you know, do these international dragon boat things. And she just loved her life so much. And we all loved her. So it was really not no question that anybody else was going to do the show. And I knew that it had to be, it couldn't be live. It had to be recorded. And then the format of a radio show with episodes is the same as the format of a podcast. So the thing that I had written it for, which was already obsolete when I wrote it in the 90s, which was radio drama, is now back. And that seems actually to be the kind of the, we had a British science teacher, so she would say corollary. The corollary of the history of pastiche is that these works that were written and I could not make them happen in their you know, they're in their entirety back in the 90s because because in the 2020s, I could make them happen. You know, I could cast them, record them, finish them, and get them out in the world. And that is an incredible, incredibly positive thing about this decade. And there's so many things that aren't, but but just that we can make our own work. And if we can get it out there enough, people will find it. And they not, they don't have to be in New York City. They can be anywhere in the world. So yeah. the story of Alice was very important because we knew that time was of the essence. And in fact, she passed away in the beginning of October. And I thought that it would just kill me to have to edit it. And in fact, it was a treat because I, you know, my theory as you get older is that there's more and more people that you loved and admired that don't exist anymore on the planet. But if you just ignore that fact, they're as much in your life as they were if you just hadn't, you know, called them on the phone for a, a year, which happens. And so for Alice, it was like, I, I got through pretty much everything, just enjoying spending that time with her, even though she was gone. But when I get to the end, uh, every time I get to the end, I just totally lose it. So one of the things that doing it as a podcast rather than a show I could add was what I called a New York City postcard, New York City audio postcards. So at the end of every episode is a, a I walked around with a sound recorder and a Tascom, I think that's what it's called. Just a, just a little mic. And so I walked around New York City recording the most, I hate this word, but anyway, the most iconic sounds of New York, like ambulances and garbage trucks and the subway squeaky oh and definitely subways you know you know and but the very the 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 chimes in the central park children's zoo carriage horse clip-clopping along and i spent a lot of time that day in central park and there was a band and i could hear it when i was doing the horse clip-clopping there was a band and they were pretty good you know sort of four piece playing old songs so i went over to them and was recording them. And I ended up, you know, telling who I was, got their name and ended up paying them because I put this song that they were playing at the very end of the show. And the song they were singing, which is in the public domain, the song they were singing was I'll See You In My Dreams. I know, <laughs> I'm looking at you, that's exactly. And every time when I get, when I'm like, I had to make the YouTube version today, yesterday, because, you can't just put audio on YouTube. You have to make little movies. So I got to the end of the eighth episode and, you know, and had sort of forgotten. It's like, oh yeah, it's the guys in the park. And then I just like, 
and I just lost it. So Alice is with us, and this, and as long as there's electricity, or or as Ryuichi Sakamoto would say, as long as there's batteries, this is gonna, you know, this is gonna exist. I don't know how many people will hear it. I don't know where they'll be or when. And it's not that I don't care. I want a lot of people to hear it, but you know, it's there. And to me, as a theater person, with theater being of necessity ephemeral. You know, once you film it, it's not theater anymore, it's film. This stuff isn't going away. It, you know, it exists. And that's, that makes a big difference to me. Wow. Wow. Oh my gosh. That is absolutely incredible. I want to build on that. You know, we've, we've now learned kind of where you got the idea, how you put the show together, the incredible contributions of people like this incredible person, Alice, what is the message or thought you're hoping that that audiences will take away from the show? Well, the funny thing is the show is about a woman alone in the 90s in an age of diminished expectations. So it's about who you think you are. And then as life buffets her and she kind of goes, you know, she starts out as a like a guy used to be a sort of manager level person in a in a big international corporation, which happened to be RCA Vic there having to be music business, which was the greatest job in the world, you know, and then it was, I don't want to go too much to this, to telling the story, but, you know, my, in my life, it wasn't having an affair with an executive. It was that they had basically sold off the whole back catalog, including all the Broadway shows and everything. And once they had profit, profited from it, like for $20 million or something, then they fired us because there wasn't any more back catalog to exploit. And that was my lesson in corporate, not ethics, just the way they work. You know, it's all about profit. So the point of grace under pressure is actually finding out who you really are and what you're really good at and doing it for other people. You know, she was very comfortable at the beginning, a very nice life and a little apartment and a little cat and a little private side, you know, and all these sort of what we now would call white privilege things. And I just pulled the rug out from under her constantly during the during each episode not just once but two or three times you know the things she thinks that she can rely on aren't there but what saves her is her willingness to persevere and her friends and the ability then to make new friends and you know there are all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life that aren't hers and she ends up embracing the the difference and finding that those are the people who come through for her so that's what grace under pressure is really like and it really you know hemingway's thing of you know what's courage and grace under pressure that's what i wanted to see unfortunately there are at least three other podcasts called grace under pressure so i mine was first because mine was before podcast <laughs> but i call it grace under pressure by pastiche nyc just for differentiating it i think the point of all my work because somebody asked me, I was like, there is a through line, weirdly enough. There's always music. Uh, music is just, the, for me, the best way to get important things expressed in song, because you have to, you have to boil it down, you know, and say what's most important in a song. But it ended up being in the lyrics for, for, for Persuasion, because at the end of Persuasion, I got to the happy ending and everything. And then I thought, well, it really needs a finale. So the finale was all of the actors in their home recording situations, including myself, and the woman playing Jane Austen being Jane Austen. So we were all kind of talking to her and 
saying how things worked and didn't work and what you want. But the lyric that sort of unites us is saying, you know, you can write yourself free. She could, she could, she managed to, Jane Austen managed to write in the least salubrious situation, you know, just in tiny bits of time on scraps of paper, but she immortalized herself by doing that. And with Edith Wharton, so the, so, so persuasion is comedy because you, because she wins in House of Mirth, Edith Wharton, who is also sort of the bookend narrator of the show that I, the pastiche that we recorded. How Smurf is about the commodification of beauty, about how beauty becomes somebody else's idea of beauty becomes this thing that you have to either fail at or succeed at. And Edith at the end, it was actually a quote from directly from Edith, which was, I wasted my youth trying to be beautiful, but now that I've given up all hope, I feel far more free. And that word free was there again. And I thought, well, that's, you know, women, writers, historically, at least in the last two centuries, have been the exception. And therefore, like more propelled with the fact that everything in their lives is telling them that they aren't worth anything. And even if they were, it wouldn't be about your writing. And yet, it's a non-gender activity. You don't need to be muscular or have other body parts to write a book or, you know, a musical or anything. So it's a way of freeing yourself. And I guess I'm freeing myself, and especially by resurrecting Grace Under Pressure. It's a way of dealing with grief, anticipatory grief, because we knew that Alice was not going to, you know, there's no, there was only one way she was going to go, which is a question of how long. And grief afterwards, because, you know, I'm never going to see her again. And that's the hardest thing to deal with when people die. But to make something that lives on and potentially, you know, could be, shot into outer space in a capsule, that is a kind of freedom. And that's, you know, what makes it worth doing. Oh, that's so lovely. Love that. My final question for this first part is, who do you hope have access to Grace Under Pressure? Well, if anybody wants to do it as a play, God bless them. I think, you know, I don't, I no longer think that something's going to happen because of something. You know, I really just work in terms of the thing itself. I just wanted to make this and now it's made. And I did hire somebody to help me publicize because marketing and PR and social media are things that I am not good at, but I have two advisors and they are, they got a hold of you for one thing. And that's, you know, that's huge. Cause I, how would I have found you? I don't know. I think I came to the end of this. I came to a blind alley on this one. What was I talking about? You were talking about if anybody wants to turn it into a play, God bless them. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But that it's the thing itself. All the time that you're doing off-off Broadway shows as a performer, which I did a lot of, you know, you're really hoping that somebody will take it off Broadway. And if you do an off-Broadway show, they're really hoping somebody will take it onto Broadway. If you do a Broadway show, you're really hoping that it'll run forever. It's like you don't live. <laughs> There's another lyric that I really like from a song called my hometown you live forever on the never never back in my hometown never never means that you bought stuff on you know paying on you're paying on time you're paying 20 percent down and stuff like that but to me that seemed like what the theater world is you know always you know it's wonderful and then it's you have these great working relationships with people and then you know unless you make a concerted effort to stay friends and stuff you never see them again and so you're constantly churning through a whole bunch of great people which is a, like a great side effect of working in the theater. 
but in terms of hoping that something's going to happen instead of doing something for its own sake, I think that's the madness of theater. And the beauty of pastiche is I didn't have to hope for anything. I could make it happen. And if somebody likes it, great. If they don't like it, please don't send me a nasty comment about somebody's backside. I just like, I'm not interested. But the beauty of being able to make something as beautiful as you want it to be. And House of Mirth is really beautiful. I mean, we got, at that point, the costume collection was open. When we did Persuasion, you didn't see anybody from the waist down, except for once I made like a conglomeration, Photoshop conglomeration of everybody from the waist down and then stuck their live videos on on top of their legs. Because I was so tired not seeing anybody's legs. But in House of Mirth, which was in 2021-22, TDF Costume Collection was open again. I don't know if you know about it, but it's an amazing warehouse of amazing costumes from every decade and also crazy props and hats and all sorts of things. So we went to town, as you will see if you see House of Mirth, and the actors just, they just bloomed. I mean, to get the guys really beautiful suits and vests and ties, to get the women these beaded edwardian fantasy costumes it it made a huge difference you know as opposed to the the hats that i was sewing for persuasion that that and the green screen stuff that that moves house of mirth up into another level of pastiche much more sophisticated and and you really kind of forget that nobody's in the same room we have love duets where people were not in the same room when it was recorded and there's a certain pathos to that that people will now happily forget that we ever had to do that. But we did it. And the, my performers were spectacular. So back to Grace Under Pressure. No costumes, but wonderful voice actors. And they play, each one of them, besides Alice, plays a range of characters. That is really just glory. You know, I love that. I love double casting. I love actors being able to show their versatility and commitment to that part and to, then to that part and stuff. So you'll hear it. It's, it's, they really did a, a fantastic job, partly because, because of Alice, because everybody loved her and everybody knew what was going on. And they did 110% as performers. I want to give our listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit better. And I want to ask, what is your favorite part about working in the theater? The people, they're your family about working in the theater. When I was an actor and when I was a director, there's a point if you're not just like mopping up after people or, you know, if you have a real part, there's a point at which you actually channel that character through yourself. You never really stop being yourself, but it's a feeling of cosmic inspiration that sounds a little overblown, but certainly in directing, I felt it. And occasionally as an actor, I felt it, that everything that you've done up to this point in your life is available to you to make the right decisions. You just have like the still small voice of conscience, but it's not conscience, it's, it's inspiration. And by which I mean, there's some kind of energy that you like what an orchestra conductor does. You know, orchestra constructor doesn't do anything. 
you know, he doesn't play an instrument. He goes like this, but a wonderful orchestra conductor knows that music with every fiber of his being and is somehow conducting that. That's what makes him a conductor, conducting that to the 88 people in the in the orchestra. And they know it. And an orchestra knows when that's happening and they know when it's not happening. And a directors like that sometimes too, you just know the right thing to say to help somebody do something or put them in the right position where they're going to do what they do best, but you're going to help them with everything, you know, with the costumes, with the lighting, with the, what, whatever needs to be done so that that energy can flow into the show and then to the audience. That leads me to my favorite question to ask, which is what is your favorite theater memory? Ooh, oh, I'm so glad. Cause I'm going to answer three ways. One as an audience the original production of Man of La Mancha, Richard Kiley. <laughs> it just, it was everything. You know, I was, I don't know, 14 or something. To have seen that, that's like worth the price of life admission. My, weirdly enough, my second favorite memory was when I was 17, I was apprentice in at the Cape Cod Melody Tent in Hyannis, Massachusetts, which was a national tour stop. And a Man of La Mancha came through with Howard Keel. Now, my my first love of that whole summer was Howard De Silva playing Ben Franklin in 1776, who I would you know gladly give I don't know some spare molars to see see him again. He was just perfect and adorable. But the show in the Howard Keel and Man of La Mancha, the woman playing Aldonza had an accident in the fight scene, which had a big ladder and it hit her and broke one of her teeth. And she was not well treated by the management and she left in a huff. She went back to New York and said, I'm going to my dentist. And she left the show. And her understudy that day had been lying on the beach and giving herself sun poisoning. So her understudy was this mousy little dame who was playing like the, the kitchen toady, the, the scullery maid, walking around with buckets. And they made her Aldonza. Now, Aldonza traditionally is sung by a giant, zoftig, black-haired fireball. And there was this, she looked like me, this mousy little stringy hair. She got through it somehow. And everyone was really good. And they just, but then I got to understudy her. So there I was in her costume with like my entrances and exits pinned to my shirt, walking down to pick up some buckets or a stool or something, get them off the stage. And I took the wrong aisle and I looked up and there was Howard Keel coming down the stage because it was, it was a theater in the round and everything came down to the state, this round stage. And I looked at him and I looked terrified, which I was. And I turned around and I ran down the stage and ran off at another exit. And the spontaneity of that and the fact that I was even there and it wasn't so much that he was a movie star because, you know, we had movie stars when I was growing up, but just the aliveness of that moment is actually one of my favorite memories. And, you know, 3000 people saw it in 1973. I'm sure that's their principal memory. Anyway, that's my favorite theater story. Wait, do I have a third one? As an audience member, my absolute favorite show, or for my response was actually, because it's heartbreaking at the end, was Tom Stoppard's Arcadia and the National Theater production. Rufus Sewell and it, it, it just got to the end and it really I really cared for those people and I really was in mourning for the way it all turns out and you know it's crying 
And I thought, well, that's what you're supposed to be doing. It's very seldom happens. But there was something about the production where everybody was perfect. And of course, Rufus Sewell's absolutely gorgeous. And I mean, gorgeous in a way that, you know, the fact that he's such a good actor just is legitimizing the fact how gorgeous he is. But it just it just was just my favorite audience event. Thank you so much for those memories. Those were so wonderful. Wow. Yeah. Well, my mission, I think, is to be the connection between all that back then and what's happening now and yes. both in technology and people so that I can I can share that stuff so it's not 100% gone. And also there were things that people really cared about. I mean, I guess my real mentor was Jose Quintero, who started the Circle in the Square Theater and was an incredible discovery of unknown talent and really didn't care about showbiz per se. And I guess, you know, I ended up working with him in, in towards the end of his life. And, and I learned stuff from him that I would really like to pass on to other people. So that's why I feel like the conduit of energy kind of thing comes back to that. And everything doesn't have to be in 30 second sound bites. Everything doesn't have to be TikTok. That's all great. It's really fun. You know, memes are wonderful. But there's stuff that you can't cover in those formats that human beings need, whether yeah. they know it or not. So yes. Taylor Swift will have to do without me. <laughs> but that's, I feel like that's sort of my job. I hope that's not too pontificating, but it's what I feel that whatever time I have left, I want to do stuff that makes that connection. Yeah. Well, are there any other projects or productions you have coming out of the pipeline? Ooh, the okay. So, <laughs> so I've learned to only do one thing at a time because I'm fragile that way, but yes, there's a project also from back then called Paris Malice, which is a play, kind of a dreamlike play that I did not write, but the playwright's sister brought it to me and said, here, you know about plays, read this, what do you think? And I said, I think it needs to be a musical. So I musicalized it with some songs that I had already written and some songs that I wrote for it. And, and then guess what? It ended up in a drawer, but I wrote it with a particular older, then we call it said African-American woman who sort of inspired me to make this character more complex. And she's the singer. She like her songs are like the Greek chorus of this dreamlike play, which is like a film noir music dancing acting thing. It's a, you know, it's again, it's like it's sort of defining its own stuff. So it's called Paris Malice. And I rediscovered in an old friend, a friend of mine, somebody who now is perfect for that part because so much time has gone by. And she actually has a, an orchestra that she's the band leader of in Houston, Texas. So we're looking at finding a venue in Houston, Texas, where she can arrange the songs for her band, perform it and do it. It's like, I don't, you know, we'll just see where it goes from there, but it's very exciting. It's very exciting to have such a great collaborator. Um, and that would be like, you know, if we, can get some interest in a theater we probably couldn't do it till 2025 so we'll look for grants and blah, 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 you know show business stuff but Paris Malice is really it's quite a powerful and very strange piece so it's not it needs to be live it needs to have real human beings on a stage doing this stuff in a way more so because it's dreamlike than making dreamy backgrounds and stuff like that you know it it need you need to see it in real three dimensions. So I'm getting tempted back into live theater, but in a different way. 
Well, we'll have to stay tuned to that. And that's a good lead into my final question, which is if our listeners want more information about Grace Under Pressure or about you, perhaps they'd like to reach out to you. How can they do that? Well, we have an email that is strictly for the shows and it's pastiche nyc press at gmail.com don't be put off by the fact that it says press we have a facebook page for pastiche nyc which i think is at pastiche nyc and you can always respond you know comments and stuff but if somebody sent me an email and wanted to talk i would i would call them i think we should do it that way but also www.pastichenyc.com. There's some contact stuff down there too. But take a look at the whole thing because the it's it's so it's it's interesting to me that you know I have a early 19th century piece with early 19th century music. I have a beginning of the 20th century piece with seems like beginning of 20th century music was actually written deep into the 20th century by a Japanese man, genius. Everything's very different. And that's, you know, maybe a liability as a as a modern artist. I don't know. I mean, never be famous, Andrew, but that's okay. I'll be fine. Well, Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about Pastiche NYC and about this great work, Grace Under Pressure. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you, Andrew. It's a wonderful to talk to you. And I I wish you and your wife all the best happy juneteenth and i can't wait to hear how you sew all this together (laughs) thank you you're welcome my guest today has been the creator emily king whose new work grace under pressure is being presented by pastiche nyc it's an eight-part audio comedy radio drama musical podcast miniseries that you can listen to or get more information by visiting grace-under-pressure.simplecast.com or even better just go to pastichenyc.com and we're going to have all this information as well as some contact information posted on our episode description as well as on our social media but in the meantime head to pastichenyc.com check out grace under pressure and all the amazing things that emily king has created So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.